Margaret, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. I want to open with what I think is an incredibly important question. I was reading your your blog, and you talked about how at one point in your life, you were searching out to help humans survive in space, in space stations. So two questions. Why did you pursue that as, as a goal? And two, what happened? Why are we all not on our way to Mars? Uh, well, okay. So um, that was, in fact, the, the first job that I ever wanted to have that I remember, like when I was a little, little kid, was I wanted to be um, an intergenerational colony spaceship designer um, because I loved Star Trek Next Generation. And uh, it was like it was like a ritual in my household that me and my dad would watch Star Trek Next Generation, you know, when I had been good and could stay up that late. Um, and I loved everything about that show. I loved that future. And I knew that it was the future. I knew I, I knew enough even as like pre-elementary age, I knew enough to know that it was the future, but I misunderstood how far in the future it was. And so I was thinking that like I could be part of like the generation that helped build towards that, not realizing that like by my own standards of that time period, we were like way, way, way in the past. Um, and so uh, I never did get to like professionally design intergenerational colony ships, although I have filled many sketch pads and graph paper pads with my concepts per said. Um, I as I realized where we actually were in like the overarching timeline towards, you know, Starfleet Academy. Um, I became obsessed with trying to figure out what the holdup was. Like, why, why are we not in space? Y'all want to be in space. Um, and what I came down to was that, um, human beings lost way too much of our lives trying to make up for, uh, deficits in our childhood because we didn't put enough priority on raising and educating our kiddos. And so like, I know I spent most of my twenties getting over my childhood, <laughs> you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the misinformation, the like re-education, like all that stuff. And, uh, I just, I decided that like focusing on human development and education was the fastest route to get us from point A, the past to point B, Star Trek. I love it. I love it. That is quite the optimistic and audacious uh, young person goal to be like, I'm going to, but it makes sense. though. I think if you watch Star Trek, right, you're kind of like, you don't necessarily have all the grounding in science. You're like, well, yeah, eventually like we're, we're pretty close to this. So that's, I like, uh, I like your thinking. So does that mean you're a, like, so are you a Jean-Luc Picard? A fish? Is that your, is that your man? And you're not a Captain Kirk person, not a Spock person. You're, you're clearly on uh, was it Rikert and Picard? That, that's your, that's your, your, your <laughs> zone. Original? The original Star Trek, I would obviously be Spock all day, every day, but mm -hmm. I didn't, that wasn't my Star Trek. That wasn't the Star Trek of my childhood. Um, so when I was coming up, I identified the most closely with Data. Data is the first um, autistic character that I ever saw in media. And I didn't realize that's what I was identifying with at the time. But like in retrospect, like, oh yeah, totally. I was identifying with the autistic robot. Um, and it was super cool to like see myself in a character because that was not a thing that happened often. But I always identified with Data and always aspired to grow up. Up to be Jean-Luc Picard. Nice, nice. Well, that's a good goal. I think, you know, as I look back on it, I think it's clear, maybe it's somewhat gener somewhat generational bias between us here, probably. It's like next generation seems, you know, far and away the better of the two. I mean, maybe groundbreaking, right? Star Trek <laughs> itself was groundbreaking, so we have to always give the first its credence because it did break new ground. But I think, you know, next generation definitely kind of took it to the next level. It's just a lot more entertaining when you watch it, looking back on it. 
Yeah, I'm a fan. And I, honestly, I think probably the things that I'm most grateful for that first generation of Star Trek for were was paving the way, mm-hmm. obviously, because like it paved the way not just for next generation, my Star Trek, but also just for like m- sort of a modern popular acceptance of sci fi and and exploring ideas about what civilization could be in the future. And, and I do think it opened the door for a lot of that a lot of those stories to become mainstream that were just like, you know, I was always going to be a sci-fi nut. I, I grew up, I was born to love Isaac Asimov, but like in Isaac Asimov's day, I know he lived a million years. So part, part of my life was actually his life, but most of his life, sci-fi was obscure. Like it was, it was like the little, it was like the little magazines. It was like a cult fandom a lot more than it was like an accepted part of like how we engage with our universe. And so one of the things I really love about that super corny, like ridiculous original series, Star Trek is that it helped mainstream humans start entertaining those ideas as things that were accessible, were engageable. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, hundred percent. So, I mean, we, we owe a lot to Star Trek, so that's, it's fantastic. All right. Well, I'm going to take this. If nothing else, Jean-Luc Picard, that's your number one guy. I'll have to remember that. Definitely. All right. I'm going to avoid, I'm not going to ask you any questions about Star Wars versus Star Trek. So that gets us down a whole nother tangent, you know, and could, <laughs> potentially that could be a violent conversation, a lot of emotion in that. So we're just going to skip over that for now, but we'll save it for next time. Next time we talk, we'll maybe we'll go into that. But, um, you know, as people may know, you work at Twilio, and that's really w- one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is I wanted to get a little insight into Twilio, and you used to work in developer advocate Twilio, and you got this other project we're going to talk about in a little bit. So definitely want to get into that, but before we do it, you know, it's always nice to, to kind of understand how people found their way into technology, and it sounds like going way back in my research here, you found fell in love with Visual Basic. Again, I'm going to say in, in like a, a younger year, in a uh, maybe a a junior high school kind of uh, area in, in life, but that somehow led you, your love of Visual Basic, from what I can tell, led you to get into gaming. So why don't you tell us the journey? How did you go from the uh, young uh, junior high Visual Basic to actually building uh, pretty complicated games? What What's the journey there? Okay, so the first thing to know about me is, like, contextually, I am old. Um, so when I was coming up, computers were not accessible like when the computer lab went into my elementary school it was a big deal Mm -hmm. and like nobody had computers at home like my mom was one of the first people I knew to bring a computer into a home and that's because she was like a, a, a lit professor at a local university it was it was work gear it was not play it was not no one could touch it it was it was like computers were like this like totem to the future. So, so like where are we? Are we like the Apple IIe? Are we at the IBM XT? Are we like Commodore 64? What, like which, which uh, uh, hardware did, were you, was your hands on first there? Uh, Apple II. Um, huh. and, and, um, I'm pretty sure, I mean, it's been a really long time since I was in that computer lab, but actually I found that experience in the third grade, my first experience getting to touch a computer, which I was all about, hmm. uh, was super frustrating because that particular generation of monitors made this high pitched noise that over the course of the class would give me like the most hellacious headaches that I had ever experienced. And so like that Oof. year was actually like a small tragedy for me because I'm like, I am going to be a Luddite. I never wanted to be a Luddite, but that's what's happening right now because technology hates me. And like, I would try and try and try. And eventually I would end up having to go to the nurse with just this headache that I couldn't even keep my eyes open. And so I mourned the loss of like 
all of the future that I loved. And then a few years later, I'm in junior high and there's, um, they, they gave us an exploratory elective as one of the options. Mm -hmm. And that the only option that included a programming option, the visual basic. Um, and so I'm just like, yeah, I need that. So I, I gave it another go because like technology had changed a lot. I mean, I know that's normal now, but back in the day, it was still surprising how quickly technology was changing. Of course. Uh, and so I gave it another go. And in that class, it became really clear early on that the teacher was learning with us. She had this really good textbook and we all had this really good textbook, but again, new computer lab, new textbook, new concept of teaching programming. And so there was no objection when I just plowed right through that textbook in the first two weeks of the class. And, and then I was, I didn't want to make trouble. It was just sort of like free play at that point. And so my free play of wanting to explore further than the class was ever going to get was like, Oh, well I'll, I'll make the computer talk to me. I've always wanted to have a computer friend. I'll make the computer talk to me. And that became a massive choose your own adventure game that involved just a really ridiculous number of Monty Python jokes because that was my idea of the perfect AI at that time was to choose your own adventure game. Oh, I with love lots it. Of Fantastic. Well, you're way ahead of your time here. This could have been, this could have been a billion dollar startup. Go on. It was actually a really amazing experience because like I, it took me a really long time to learn how to effectively human. And I had, was not there yet in the seventh grade. And so it was really cool that the thing that I had done to entertain myself actually became interesting to my peers and they wanted to play this game that I wrote. And then they wanted to talk about how I'd made it. And then they wanted to learn how to make their own. And that experience was first of all, one of the most socially ex like successful experiences of my young life. Um, but also just like a ridiculous amount of fun. And it, so it really, really stuck with me. And like from that point on, like if I could get my hands on a computer, my hands were on a computer. Um, I think I was 15 when the web came out and right click view source was just the most magical thing I had ever seen in my life. So HTML. anytime I saw anything on a web page and I was yep. like, Ooh, that's cool. Right click view source. How, how can I steal that code and make it my own? And mm -hmm. that was, that was the beginning of the end for me. Um, yeah. I, and so games became at that point, the tool that I used to learn hard tech things that I wanted to learn. If I wanted to learn a hard tech thing, I would just think of a game that would need that hard tech thing in order to be made. And then I would make that game and then I would know how to do the hard tech thing. Wow. That's awesome. So that's fantastic. So, so flash forward here, we'll go through So you're clearly, you know, come of age, you love games. And then looks like one of your first jobs, or I don't know, maybe your first job here is multi-access games where uh, I guess you were the COO. So, so like what exactly is multi-access games? And then secondly, what, like, what do you do as a COO? That's like a broad job. You can do a lot of things <laughs> in that job title. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that job title basically just means do all of the things. Um, so it was not one of my first jobs. It was, uh, it was, it was my first, it was one of my first startups. <laughs> hey, we've all um, had them. We've all had them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd already, I'd actually already been contracting, doing tech work for many years by the time, uh, we launched multi-access games, which was an indie game development company. It was, it was launched, um, when MMOs were a brand new idea, um, there, I think there were two at that time. I think, I think it was just horizons. And I think, I think world of Warcraft came out while we were ever, ever quest was the other one because mm -hmm. world of Warcraft came out while we were working on multi-access games, if I recall correctly, but it's been a million years. So I could be wrong about all of these things. I am not attempting to mislead. I am attempting to work a meat based memory system. Gotcha. Um, so the whole idea was that, um, 
I knew somebody that had this brilliant idea for like this really deep dive, amazing game that could be made in an MMO. And it was, it was during a time in the knots where there was a lot of money for startups and where like, there was obviously a lot of potential here that hadn't really been capitalized on yet. So the idea was if we could just get these ideas in front of the right investor, that this could be how we spent the next 10 years. And wouldn't that be fun? So while I was being the COO of multi-axis games, um, I was actually also supporting the company as a, as a contractor, like <laughs> making apps and writing code and stuff. So right, like paying the I bills. Was, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I was actually the co-founder of multi-axis games, which is how I ended up like putting on half of the hats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> and that's what basically means there is like I ran, I, I took care of, I mean, I, I think it will not surprise anyone to learn that that startup was run out of Excel and I have mad Excel skills, probably partially because of that startup. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I would say that my biggest heaviest job, obviously 10,000 things, but I would say the biggest, heaviest, most consistent job that I had, um, with that startup was managing our volunteers because, uh, we, we did make some games like as like proof of concept and like little pieces of this, that, and the other, obviously we couldn't make an MMO with a, with some volunteers, like the kind that we were thinking of at the time. Right. Uh, but I coordinated a bunch of like artists and programmers and, and testers and, and just like a bunch of volunteers all over the world. And the fact that they were across a bunch of different time zones was really hard. And the fact that they were volunteers was really hard. And just like, yeah, I learned a lot about humaning in that role. Oh, I'm sure. So this is, I mean, was this like before ultimate online and like all those, like, all these massive multiplayer games that came out later. So it sounds like you were sort of right, right at the forefront of all of this. Um, that's how I remember it. <laughs> so we'll go with that. <laughs> so were you trying, like, what, where did you come out of? Did you come out of, I guess, is it like IRC and like the MUDs or like, what was the, was that kind of the background? That seems like the gateway into <laughs> massive multiplayer games. Totally. Yeah. Um, I was definitely an IRC kid before the web was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I learned Linux so that I could have my own BBS because I would, I did, I did not like sharing my legend of the red sure. dragon install. So like, I had to have my own BBS, which meant that since it was like the nineties, I needed to learn Linux. And uh, that's how I ended up having red hat be my first distro because like, all I knew to do on that journey was go to a bookstore and read all of the Linux books that they had on their one computering bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Red Hat was the only one that had a disc in it. Yep, disc so in the back. Yeah, we all remember it. Doll. Yep. <laughs> so you but got. Yeah. So but, did the game? Uh, I mean, did it actually come out? Did it make it to like some publication, or did, was it one of these was, things that just never got out, or what? The main, the main design idea behind multi-axis games never did end up getting launched. We did launch games. Um, we, we, we made the first ever Twitter based video game. It was called tweet Lord, uh, which was my bad. I called it tweet Lord because I was obsessed with legend of the red dragon. But unfortunately a bunch of people thought that it had something to do with religion, which oh, was not a marketing uh -oh. win. That was a marketing lose, mm -hmm. um, because it was not that it was actually a super silly, like mud style adventure game. And you played by tweeting. Um, and it was, it was super cute and it was super challenging and super fun. And we got some really good press on it. But like immediately after that, like, uh, one of those, one of the big successful, um, 
clicky game farms made to like one of them instantly and another one like within six months um of of twitter tie-in games and they end up getting like all of the all of the press and all of the rewards because they were actually like like a a polished moneyed shop they mm-hmm. could they could get it to a level of done that our little band of volunteers could you never got there. That's all right. Hey, yeah. listen, Hey, you took a shot you took a shot at it. So that's cool. So, so you were at multi-access games and then it sounds like, yeah, you went to uh, is it Aesop? Am I saying that right? Aesop games? Uh, Aesop, Aesop, uh, it's, it's the fables guy, you know, all right, the fable person. Uh, that's what I wasn't sure. It is the fables <laughs> person, right? Yeah. The got fables it. guy. <laughs> and, uh, this was, uh, this was a, this was a step towards education because, um, I've always been very into it. I mean, you got my backstory, so you know I've always been really into education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was this was a an acknowledgement that the economy had changed, and like it was very unlikely at that point that some random VC was going to let us be the next big MMO shop. So that that had. You know, times change. Right. It was actually pretty depressing. We had we were we had gotten our seed funding for multi-access games finally after years of hustling. We'd finally gotten the big project, some seed money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were working on closing round two when the 2008 financial crisis took yes. us out. Sad, very sad. Yeah. And we kept going with like the volunteers as long as we could. But like eventually you just have to read the writing on the wall and go like the economy's not coming back. Like no. what was true six months ago is not true anymore. Um, and so ESOP Games was kind of like an... Um, a learn, a grow, adapt to the moment. And so, um, obviously it, it was never going to be the scale that the pre crash had made us believe was possible. So ESOP games was all about like, okay, well, what can I, what can I make right. me as an individual? What can I, a person who at that point had been writing code for money for over 10 years, like what, what can, what can I get small enough that I can do it and what content is going to make it worth it to me? And so what I did was, I, first of all, I was just like, educational content is obviously my jam. So I let like let's lean really heavily into my obsession with like history and like all this stuff. So it was a, it was a it was a historical fiction based game. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I didn't design it. The same person that did the design for the big project of monthly access games designed it. It was actually leftover design work that I was just like, well, I've got all of this art and all these design documents. What can I? What can I hack out of this? Right. To, to, I like it. Some- leftover designs. I'll just throw you some yeah. leftover designs. That's great. Yeah. So I basically mined the the remnants of multi-axis games to to like put something together. And Aesop Games was actually something that came after the project because I needed a project to up my programming skills because in that 10 years that I'd been writing code for money, my spinal condition had been deteriorating and I didn't have any access to healthcare because it was from a car accident when I was 18, which meant it was a forever pre-existing condition. So until the law changed in my thirties, I had no healthcare. So my spine had deteriorated to the point where by, by the time the crash was happening, I was mostly confined to my bed. And within a couple of years, I was basically bedridden except for like trips to the bathroom. Wow. Um, Oh my gosh. It was rough. It was rough. Like post healthcare, things are much better. Definitely recommend healthcare. It's fabulous. Um, But like at that point, uh, what I really needed in my life was to be able to up my tech skills profoundly enough to be able to secure one of the very rare fully remote jobs. Okay. Gotcha. So I, so I'm like, okay, what really awesome game can I carve out of this pile of design debris mm-hmm. um, that will allow me to learn this collection of skills that I think are between me and getting these like really 
at the time, very hard to get very rare, fully remote positions. Um, and so I did, I like, I started building Brunelleschi age of architects. That's what it became. Um, it like, I actually saw that one all the way through, um, it to beta testing. I had my entire life destroyed by it being more popular than I had anticipated it would be. Um, <laughs> the success uh, problem. That's good. Yeah. Oh, oh, it was brutal. It was brutal. Like way more beta testers showed up than I had anticipated would be interested in this incredibly nerdy history game. And it was not like, it was not like this visual cornucopia of loveliness. Like I built it. I'm like a, a backend logic programmer, like with enough front end skills to to create an interface for the stuff I have fun with. Like, so it was like a web interface. It was basically a, a mud with a web GUI. Okay. Wow. All right. <laughs> but it was incredibly deep and detailed and interesting, mm -hmm. intricate. And I had underestimated how much interest that was going to get. So they burned my server to the ground. Like I, like within two weeks of the, the beta going live, I had to rip out my custom beautiful forum that I had like incorporated into the game. And it was a really big deal because like so many, it was a living world. Even when you weren't playing, the game was running. It was a living, breathing world. And that created like events that would like talk to you through the forums. In addition to the players talking to each other in the forum, it was a big, intricate, like totally mm -hmm been into the whole of the game piece but there were too many people on it and it was like crashing and burning and awful and so i had to rip out that custom beautiful forum mm. and then i had to figure out how to like frankenstein in php bb which i knew was hardy enough to deal with the user interaction but of course did not come with any of the interactions with the game engine that the the custom one had built in so i'm like in there like ripping out guts and like right. splicing it into the game engine like while people are yelling at me because the server's on fire i don't think i slept that first two weeks of wow. the beta. <laughs> wow. So this is the classic, you know, everyone has a, a plan for well-architected systems until users show up. Then it's just like, well, what do we got to do? What do we have to do right now to keep this yep. site up? There's uh, I feel like Silicon Valley and all of tech is uh, a million, um, a million features of tech debt have been born out of the, just these problems. Like, well, we'll fix We'll do this now. We'll fix it later. And you, and you never fix it later. So, well, that's awesome. So it sounds like you had this huge success. Like what, like, so what, what became of it? Did you just have to stop doing it? It was the uh, success is killing you kind of thing. Like what, why did okay. you decide to, to get away from that? Eventually, eventually Aesop games got created around the project. I was head down in this project. Mm -hmm. uh, gosh, I, years. I spent years getting this from idea and like, as it progressed and as it got more public, I, I started getting accepted to give talks at tech conferences. At some point in there, I got access to healthcare. I got more mobile. Um, I, I started getting much more lucrative contracts. Um, and, and so for me, everything was coming up roses because like everything that I had wanted from this project was happening in my, like eventually the beta testers stopped hating me and started liking me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like things were going really well. Um, but the, the Aesop games had been created around the project after it already started it by the designer. And I had had no objection to this because I didn't see any reason to have any objection to this. But as the, as it became more of a whole thing, that designer had a lot stronger opinions about what the future of that project should look like. And eventually we just, we disagreed too completely. Right. And, um, I, I talked to an attorney and the attorney told me that I had two options. I could either walk away from the project and this human being that I was having these conflicts with, 
or I could try and keep the project. And they had every right to mess with me through that legal fight for years and years and years. And I walked away because I can make another game. Gotcha. All right. So, so I don't, I don't know what the fable there is. Maybe the inside of the Aesop games, there was another fable. Just, I don't think yeah. there's a fable of like, sometimes it's good to just walk away. I, I yeah. think many, uh, all okay. right. So of course, you know, the natural extension here after all this gaming and sci-fi, um, the natural thing that everyone wants to do is to go work for an insurance company is what, <laughs> what's next. Is that right? It looks like it's, uh, what am I going to say around here? Deans and yeah. So like <laughs> the world of insurance. Welcome. Yeah. How, like, um, what's the story here? How'd you get into that? Well, uh, the thing is, like, like I said, like, like the whole time I was taking contracts for money and um, I started looking, I, I started looking for a more uh, long term permanent position, but I didn't really have my heart set. On, like I'd ne- I had never had a salary job before this one, this job oh, at Twilio, wow. okay. my first salary grown up job Okay. Uh, for that, just contractor mercenary for a million years. And I. Um, Deans and Homer was one of, uh, uh, at the time, one of my best friends, uh, JT, was working there, and she really needed somebody to come clear their technical debt because she'd been the only web developer at this company for like a bajillion years, and she'd also been at the company for a bajillion years, which made her like a source matter expert, which meant that she was interrupted 20,000 times a day by people needing to ask her questions about like the network and the server and the everything, and so like she she just could not clear the massive amount of like technical debt that was constantly because she was basically doing three jobs at that point so she needed some Um, help so she's like come come save me that kind of thing promising her they've been promising her to hire somebody for her team for ages but they wanted they wanted to hire people they wanted somebody that would live in downtown that, that would live and work in downtown San Francisco for, for like Seattle money. And they were just not getting any takers. And like I I interviewed there and they tried to offer me that. I was just like, I will absolutely take this job for that money fully remote. That is what I will do. And they were like, no, we really want somebody on site. And so I went off and I did three other contracts and then they came back to me and they were just like, so we still haven't managed to hire anyone and you were our favorite. So would you consider doing, would you consider doing this as a remote contractor position? Okay. And I'm like, Yes, I will. (laughs) (laughs) So you twisted their arm. You got into the world of insurance. And I cleared their technical debt, and that was very satisfying. It was good? Plus, I got to work with my my really good friend, JT, which was That's always the best. Working with your friends, especially, I don't know, it it, it is. When it goes well, it's really good. Your life is really – I guess when it goes bad. The contrary is also true. It's when it goes bad. It's kind of bad. All right, so you did the insurance thing. You convinced them. And then it looks like from there, you decide to make the move to Dev Evangelist at Twilio. Is that the, the lineage? So, so in 2016, um, my contract came up. Like I was just like, okay, well, I'm done. And the contract expires in like two months. But also the administration has changed. So like the tenor of the country has changed. And my access to healthcare through the ACA is now going to be under attack for the entire next administration because that they've made it clear that that's a priority, which scares the crap out of me because I have lived without insurance as a disabled person and it's hell on earth. And I never, ever, 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 ever want to experience that again. So obviously I needed to get a salary job so that my health insurance would come through an employer, which would give me the protection of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, that was very calculated on my part, but, Uh um, 
I had a, at that point I had been speaking at tech conferences as like my own version of what a vacation is. Like if you get accepted to speak at a PHP tech conference, they will pay you. They won't, they won't pay you. They will pay for the flight and they will pay right. for the hotel. They'll put you and, up. Mm-hmm. And your disabled ass will get to travel when you'd already written off that as never being a possibility. And so I was into it. I, I spoke at a lot of tech conferences. <laughs> it was magical. Um, and so I had friends reach out to me and they were just like, look, you are already doing the job of developer relations. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should let someone pay you for that. So <laughs> I nice. decided to be open to that. So when I was interviewing, I was interviewing for senior software engineering positions and DevRel positions. And what happened was, by the time Twilio like was like making me an offer to like fly out, I had already had like half a dozen conversations with people that I would be working with. And I realized that I'd enjoyed all of them. Like they like, cause when I'm, when I interviewing, like as, uh, you do the same thing as a contractor. Um, and, and it's kind of like an interview thing. And anytime I'm in one of those phases, I'm just thinking that that's my full-time job. Cause if you get your heart set on a specific contract or a specific role, it's just going to rip you to pieces emotionally. And you're just going to run out of that energy before you've actually gotten the place that you need to be. And so I, I, it wasn't until, it wasn't until they're like, all right, let's like fly you in that I like did a brainstorm and I'm just like, oh, Hey, I've talked to like half a dozen people on this team and they're all awesome. And I had a great time talking to them. So like when they finally made me an offer, I was already like, yep, totally. This seems cool. That's cool. So it sounds like, you know, I feel like a lot of people find their way into dev evangelism through just what you said, like, you know, you just start giving talks and eventually someone's like, why don't you just do this full time? So I don't, people ask me sometimes like, well, what, like, how do you get into dev evangelism? And I think that accidentally, <laughs> yeah, well, I think the answer is like always the same. Like you should just go start talking, go to, go to your, and you don't have to go to like huge conferences, just go to your local meetups, you know, do some webinars, kind of get, you know, decide if that that's the kind of thing you like to do. And then over time you'll get invited to bigger and bigger things. And then boom, you're a dev evangelist. I didn't know that tech conferences were a thing for like the first 10 years that I was working as a coder. I know that's weird, but I'm a weird person. So just we're going to get over that and acknowledge that I just didn't know that was a thing until I was knee deep in a project that used a specific framework. And and somebody put it in front of me that there was a tech conference for that specific framework. And I'm just like, what is this? This looks magical. This is like a crash course and specifically what I want to learn in like two days. And I, I like I was I like effervesced about it on the internet. Um, and at the time I was still without healthcare. I was still mostly, uh, confined to my bed. And I had a bunch of people get together like friends and family to send me to this tech conference because it was something that I had shown a great deal of enthusiasm for. And my life was very sad and they wanted to fix that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went and I had an amazing time. I was like immediately hooked. And like, I met all of these amazing smart people and I learned so much and it was just like spectacular. And then I managed to get myself to another one, like the, the following year, less than a year later, but the, the following year. And I like, I instantly started making friends and they're, they're the developers. So they're still friends on the internet, which is where I live. Right. So like, I was able to like maintain these relationships and like grow these relationships. And people immediately started being like, we, we've got to get you back to these tech conferences. And I'm like, I am a poor person. I cannot do that. And they were just like, well, if you speak, then the conference pays for you to go. So you should, you should speak. And it took about two years of these amazing, brilliant people telling me that like I had things that were worth teaching and that I should and could do this before I actually got the nerve up to apply to speak at a conference. And what's great is you say you don't have to speak at a conference to get started. 
I was living in a rural area, so what there weren't any local meetups. But as soon as my little network of new developer friends heard that I'd finally gotten my nerve up to apply to speak at an event, my local as in only two and a half hour drive away, my local PHP meetup human reached out and they were like, hey, how about you come to the meetup and you practice that talk? And I was like, yes! And I absolutely made that drive to the big city of Seattle and gave my talk. And it was was so nice because not only was it a lower stress, lower fear factor to give it to like a small room full of people, it really, it it was a pretty small group and they were just so, so supportive. They, they were engaged. They asked good questions. They gave good feedback. It was just such a a nurturing environment that it definitely set me up for success becoming a conference speaker. Well, there you go. There's no excuses then everybody else that doesn't live in a rural area that you can just drive down the street and give a, give a quick talk at your local meetup. Like, what are you waiting for? Just go do it. So there it is. That's it. Just start giving talks. That's, that's all you need to know. That's, that's our dev evangelism entry pass. So then, all right. So then you're at Twilio and, um, I want us. I want you to help explain Twilio because I was. It's come up a, several times on the show. And we've talked about it, and I think of Twilio from a long time ago. I just think of like, oh, that's the thing that you use to send SMS messages. And then I was looking at it, and I actually heard. Uh, I think your CEO was interviewed on somewhere else, and I was like, I went out to the the, the stock ticker, and I was like, Twilio is a giant company. I was like, wow, <laughs> Twilio is doing extremely well. And then. Uh, I had some friends that worked at a company called Authy and I think Twilio bought them. And then I, I was going through, I was like, wow, like Twilio, this is like incredible. Like, I, so we need to know, I want, uh, and then I think we've also uh, on the show, we basically mischaracterized what Twilio did several times. So I wanted to bring someone on who can like explain it to us. So let's start sure. with, you know, how do you describe, someone just says like, what exactly does Twilio do today? Like what's the corporate elevator pitch today? Okay. So when I was an evangelist and had to answer this question a great deal, uh, let's see. Let's see if I can bring the, the recording back. Um, <laughs> um, we make communications APIs, any kind of communication you can think of. If it's not in person, we have an API to make it super easy and straightforward to add to your application. OK, I like it. So let's dig in. So I went I went through the whole thing because I was like, there's so much stuff I didn't know. So Twilio has solutions. That was the first thing I learned. And one of them is Twilio Flex. And one of oh, them yeah. is marketing That's- campaigns. So like what, like what, what are, like, what is, what is the Twilio solution and what are those solutions do? What okay. do they actually do? Let me, let me give you a little context. All right. So when I was hired at Twilio three years ago, there were like maybe, maybe 500 people at Twilio, maybe, um, by, but then that was, that was in June of that year. And then the following December, we hit a thousand people. Right. And now we're over 3,000 people. So, yes. like, my experience of Twilio has been expanding like, hugely the whole time. Like, like this is my first corporate job, and it's and and I've gotten to, like, learn all of the organizational things while they've been changing the entire time, which has been quite the journey. Um, so that, that's a piece of context. Another piece of context is you're not wrong that Twilio is the SMS company. The first API that Twilio ever put out was for voice and uh, SMS APIs. And that was more than 10 years ago now. And the thing to know about Twilio is that it's a developer first company founded by developers for developers. And so what do developers do? We expand it. So like we've been expanding the APIs for the entire decade. And anytime a developer like reported that they had this big pain point, that became the next priority, which is something one of the first things that I found out about the way Twilio makes decisions that I just freaking love. Like um, like we have a fax API. 
Because somebody got it in their head that we needed a fax ABA. Uh, uh, one of the biggest complaints that we got from people was that um, they had to do a separate API for email. So we got so so yeah. SendGrid no, that we need. Yes, yeah, so that they bought SendGrid, right? This was a yep. year ago, a few years ago. Uh, this was yeah, in the last year, beginning right. of the, there was a time. I don't know. Time is hard. Right. Um, after I was hired, but well, let's stop there. SendGrid, so everyone knows. I mean, it's basically one of the most popular ways to send like. Bulk email as far as what I think of, right? I mean, so that was sort of. I really like it. Um, and it's been, it's been nice. Like the SendGrid people are super cool. Mm -hmm. It was definitely difficult merging companies because it's not like they were drastically smaller than we were. It was really much more of a, of a like bringing in like, like dream team assemble instead of like, like one or two people. It was really like, how do we merge these like teams of, of whole diverse collections of people that had their own game plans and their own like goals and missions and ways of doing things. And it's been surprisingly awesome just because those human beings turned out to be surprisingly awesome. I was a little scared at first because I love the people I work with so much. I'm like, Oh no, we're going to dilute all of the awesomeness at Twilio. turns out no, SendGrid was also awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that worked out well. So, yeah. so you had the SendGrid and then, and that's, so that's your email solution, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. And then of course you can, the whole the one of the first things I ever heard about from developers was that they were having to build call centers on top of our APIs because mm-hmm. apparently there were like all of two full call center software options and they both sucked in different ways. And so one of them was like really expensive and slow to change, and one of them was like open source and impossible. Like I don't even like I've never been in the call center space. Like, oh, okay. I, I was a call center technician when I was a teenager, but that's very different. <laughs> so <laughs> I, different. I, have no, I have no deep dive knowledge on any of this stuff, but that's what I kept hearing was developers were having to build call centers on top of our APIs. And I was not the only person hearing that. So many people were hearing it that we did the work. We built a fully customizable call center solution, which is, which is flex and freaking amazing. All right. So or flex is, if I have I, a big call center, and I need to like manage this call center and get everything going. I just I call Twilio up and you'll 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 sell me fact, flex and I'll be ready to go. Is that the is that the deal there? Um. Well, I mean, if you if you get in touch with us, like probably the first step would be somebody trying to figure out what your actual needs are because like we're really seriously invested in the people in the companies and organizations that use us. If they're successful, we're successful. We're like totally bought into that idea. So like the the first step would be somebody being like, all right, so what what like what business purpose is this idea serving? Like, because maybe you don't need a full call center. Maybe you just need automated email and you think you need a call center, in which case you're going to be really mad at us like in three months when you've got a full call center and you realize you're using this tiny little piece of it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you really do need a full, full call center, one of the great things that I have heard, again, it's not my area of expertise, but it is like whatever version of call center you need, whatever, how many ever varieties of experts you need to have and route different calls or texts or you know, automated phone trees, like all of the everything, any individual piece of it or any collection of it, you can customize your solution to your needs without needing to like hire an expert to do it or, or pay the, the parent company of the software project to do it or anything like that. So I hear it's awesome. All right. And the I like it. That I have seen have been super cool. All right. I'm sold. All right. So that's part of the Twilio. <laughs> then the other part, this is the part that I actually have some knowledge about. I know there was a company called Offy and I always, uh, I always like the Offy authenticator app because it allowed, it was like the first one that allowed you to you know keep your authenticator on multiple devices, the seed, 
because otherwise you're stuck with the, the Google Authenticator app. And then it's like if your phone like broke or something, you're just, you're dead. Like you're just dead. Yep. So that was, yep. I remember Authy, I was like this, thank you. I was like, thank you, Authy. You've, you've given us, all of us a little bit of peace of mind. So, so I assume if I, if I uh, want to get some security and some identity, Authy is there and it's there to help me. Is that the the story with that yeah, one? Absolutely. So like uh, Authy is one of these really cool projects that was built on top of our APIs. Mm-hmm. And since it was something that developers needed and somebody had already implemented an awesome version of it on top of our APIs, we just, you know, nom, nom, nom that organization and all their developers up because delightful. So yeah, um, Authy is a 2FA solution. Okay, so Authy, it's a little tr- tricky to talk about because Authy is the name of the end user app, but mm-hmm. it's also the name of the API for interacting with it. Okay, gotcha. All right. But um, the person that everybody should talk to about all things Authy and security is my team human, Kelly Robinson. She is like, she is all about the security and like Authy is her jam. And like any deep dive questions you have about that, hit her up because she's freaking brilliant at explaining complicated things in super easy ways. All right. We're going to find her because we love talking identity, or at least I do. So we always like, we always like to learn the tricks and stuff. And I would, I would imagine, I always wondered, be interesting to know like how many SMS messages sent by Twilio are really just uh, some form of two factor authentication. You know, it's just like, <laughs> just like uh, enter this code. You probably, my guess is Twilio leads, leads the world in sending, uh, please enter this code into, cause it, I don't know. It feels like it's like the most, I, I I've heard this question asked a million times and I think the people are just like, yeah, just use Twilio. That's like the only answer. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know if I've ever heard another answer. So, uh, so it's good. the right answer, obviously. Yeah. I mean, clearly it is. Cause I, it is hard for me to uh, know what the other one is. All right. Then, um, this other thing I, I like, I just like this name super network. What, what is the super network? And like, and of course, why is it super? Um, okay. So, Ooh, we're getting very telephonics up in here, which is the opposite end of the tech stack from anything I understand. Uh-huh. But let me do my best. So from what I understand, oh, I, I, I should have studied for this interview. From what I understand, the super network is how we refer to the vast collection of um, network interactions that we manage on behalf of our clients. So so it's super. <laughs> so it, is, it is super. I'm I'm trying to pull up. Um, so in our orientation, one of the cool things is like when you go through orientation, they bring in experts from different pieces of the company to give you a presentation on their specific area of expertise. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that's really trying to pull up the super network guy because he gave this really great explanation. Um, so the thing is that people have this one idea of how communications happen on the planet and it's not accurate. Like I think most people think that there's just like a magical network of satellites that make sure that all communications everywhere just happen and it's perfect. And that has nothing to do with reality. (laughs) Right. Um, And in the reality is actually this really kind of bizarro patchwork of um, organizations managing different pieces of different aged technology that kind of connects together across multiple like state managed areas and so it's tricky both on a technological level and like on a government corporate level because every region has its own rules every organization has its own rules Mm -hmm. and that makes things like reliability a complex question not a simple question and so like the fact that we can offer people high quality connections and high reliability connections is based on so many different layers of being smart and well-informed about technology and also organizations and contracts and laws. Um, so that's actually what 
fascinates me the most about it because like I will deep dive on tech things with you all day long. But when you start talking about multiple generations of technology that are woven in with multiple different kinds of rule sets, organizational and governmental and like all these other like regulatory bodies. I'm just like, oh, please, someone do this for me. Please, please do not make me do this. Do not want. (laughs) Don't make me talk to the auditors. I got you. (laughs) All right. So that's the super network. And then channels API. I think this is the bread and butter of uh, this is the Twilio we all know and love. Right. So this is how I can send my SMS messages. I can send all my email via SendGrid. I didn't know this one. I just learned when I was reviewing for the show here, it's like WhatsApp. So I can now send messages via WhatsApp. I like it. I want to get my 2FA messages via WhatsApp. I want someone to implement that. That would be... I want to do a call out right here. Like, uh, I just want to raise a flag here because WhatsApp is super cool. and Everybody loves it. But the thing is that while we have a great API for interacting with WhatsApp, it is not owned by us. Mm -hmm. And the organization that owns it has its own rules about uh, who gets out of the sandbox. So like with most of our APIs, you spin something up, you say it's live. We're like, okay, cool. It's live. Do what you want. But with this one, because we don't own the endpoint, okay. they get to choose whether or not you get to play outside of the sandbox. We can give you a sandbox. You can make your mm. app do all the awesomeness, but we don't have the authority to give you permission to go live. They have to do that. All right. So we've been warned. Must get mm-hmm. permissions. There's there's some extra governance there. Okay. That's good to know. Uh, this is my feature request for all of uh, Twilio. I would like there to be a way to send uh, SM- or, uh, messages via signal. I think that would be nice. Uh, you know, that way we can just get our nice, super secure 2FA messages. So, you know, while, while you're programming uh, ways to do everything else, throw that one in there. Throw that in the backlog. And then you already mentioned yep. programmable facts, which I actually don't want a fax machine, but occasionally I have to send, like, something to a doctor's yep. office. That, that would be good. I don't know. I need a programmable fax app or something where I could just, like, send this PDF, like an email, yeah. but fax no, it to them. So often what it gets spun up for, like, obviously there are organizations that implement it, mm-hmm. but I would say that probably fewer organizations have it implemented than individual developers have just spun up an app so that they could send a fax. <laughs> well, that, I'm telling you, it's when you need to send a fax and you can't, you learn, you're like, this is, oh. <laughs> this is a bad, I'm in a bad spot I'm, or I'm at a Kinko's. That's what I find myself like, oh, sending like $7 a page fax. You're like, this is not good. This is not yeah, a good decision. If you're in one of the three places that still has like a place where you can go pay to fax. I feel like it's always the doctor's offices. Like somehow, some way it's like, we have to send, I don't know, but that's a whole nother discussion about why. that. And then finally, Runtime. I read in a survey, this is what really caught me off guard the other day. I looked in uh, one of the CNCF surveys or one of the surveys they release and uh, serverless, they were looking at that and, and Twilio's name popped up. And I had this, I really, I, I pride myself on at least knowing I did not know about this. So, so what is the story here? Does Twilio actually have a serverless runtime like that competes with, you know, the big boys like Lambda and, um, and other you know, cloud vendors? Like what's, what's the story there? I'm not, I, I am absolutely not weighing in on <coughs> competing. That's, that's not, that's wrong. That's not. I know there's no competition here. There's nothing there. There are no other products or services. So you stand alone, but how, how does it work? What, what do I do with it? If I'm, if I'm want to uh, use it again, I don't know all of the things, but what I can tell you is that, uh, Twilio has been, uh, slowly, but surely in my time at Twilio, been expanding the number of ways that you can implement our APIs as a developer. Obviously we're developer first. So it's all about like what makes it easier on developers? And one of the first ways that we that 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 changed after I was hired was uh, something called Twilio 
functions and then Twilio bins. And then we're just expanding the number of ways that like, okay, so with Twilio functions or Twilio bins, if you have a super simple, tiny function that you need to do with Twilio, that would only be like a few lines of XML or like a single JavaScript function, you don't need to spin up your own server for that. We now have ways built into the uh, console to where you can just spin that up and run it off of our servers. I mean, we're maintaining those lovely servers anyway, you know, come on aboard. Come on aboard. Um, I like it. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, from what I understand, they, uh, be, as the, they've expanded the flex project because so much of that is a service that we've also been exploring other ways in which we can allow people to capitalize off of the fact that we're really good at it things. I like it. All right, good. So there's a lot going on. So this is what everybody, this is my summary of Twilio. There's a lot going on. So we got call centers. You can help us with that. Some security and identity. Help us with that. Pretty much send messages via email, SMS, WhatsApp if we're nice, if we get permission, as well as fax machines. And then and then on top of it, throw in a little serverless platform and, and we, we've got everything together. All right. Well, I appreciate you walking us around the, the tour of Twilio products. Now, the next thing that I, I need to really understand here is I heard your CEO speak and what I think on a podcast, something that, and he referred to like drawing the owl and then <laughs> referred to these Twilio owls. And I was like, eh, I don't know. Sometimes I hear stuff like that. I'm like, Hmm, I don't know how that feels. So I went to the website. There's an entire video about drawing the owls and there are a lot of owls at Twilio. So my question is, can you draw an owl and, and why is everyone at Twilio Twilio drawing an owl. Okay. So yes, I can draw an owl. In fact, sometimes when I'm being, um, well, I think funny, I like to sketch owls during Twilio events and then show them to people to demonstrate that I am in fact drawing the owl. Um, but <clears throat> the, the, the concept of draw the owl, um, from what I understand, it was one of the first early, like the Twilio things was, um, you know, you know, that test where you're like to get into art school, you like, draw things. That was the first thing that came into my mind. And I'm just like, why are we, why are we all talking about getting into art school? I don't understand. Um, and then, there, then it was un, unpacked for me, uh, that it, it was a joke around how, uh, with like drawing instructions, you're just like, okay, so to draw an owl, you draw an oval and then you like draw a little triangle for the beak and then you draw the rest of the fucking owl. Um, <laughs> okay. And so the concept is that, like, because we're an organization founded by and for developers, we're always going to be hitting things that there is no manual for. And our philosophy is so just then just figure it out. Like, there's there it's not going to be step by step. Okay, so I guess so. Draw now is just like, hey, figure it out. You got to figure out how to draw now. Like, you yeah, need you to use the owl. All right, got it. I like it. All right, well, that's good. I mean, that's uh, that's better than say go figure it out. Draw the owl. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that on my son later. I'm just going to hit him with, hey, go draw the owl. It's a lot friendlier. It's it's less hostile because like we're we're not about like figure it out. That's like mm-hmm. that's like a mean thing to say. But like draw the owl. It's much more evocative of the emotions that we are trying to bring out of people. Like be inspired, be a problem solver, be empowered. This is something you can do, and that's very much the attitude at Twilio. All right, so it's like a cultural phrase then, drawing the owl. All right, so after we get off this uh, recording, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to draw an owl. It's not gonna nice. be good. Maybe I'll make it. Maybe I'll try to. I'll scan it and I'll make it to show notes. Everyone can, <laughs> Everyone can critique my ability to draw an owl. And then they can post their own drawings of owls. I'm into it. All right, let's do it. Let's let's get it going. All right, well, let's get to um, what you're doing now. So you've left your, the world of dev evangelism, at least temporarily, maybe forever. And now I, I kind of read it a little bit, as I understand it. You know, Twilio Quest, is this a, a return to, like, gaming in some way? Like, what, like what exactly is Twilio Quest? 
I have accidentally become a paid game developer. How did this happen? It's very strange. Um, so yeah, uh, this year I have uh, transferred from the developer evangelism team to our sister team, the developer education team. Uh, we have multiple teams that serve developers on a team of teams called the developer network. So we really are a team of teams. And so it was uh, basically two steps left. I'm still working with all the same people, just spending a little more time with different ones. Um, and Twilio Quest is this amazing uh, brainchild of this super cool human being named Kevin. And uh, when, one of the first things that I ran into when I joined Twilio was that they had this 8-bit style gamification of micro tutorials. And I'm just like, this is so cool. And they used it to run their super class, which is what the developer education team calls their like full day workshops where developers can come in and they will teach you how to use all the tools. And they, this, this was just the curriculum for that. And it was a super cute thematic thing. And sometimes at like, and, and for like the big annual conference, they'd like make it more arcadey and there'd be like prizes and stuff because like the whole gaming theme. And I loved it so much. I was like, can I take this on the road as an evangelist? And they were like, uh, we don't know what that would be like, but sure, <laughs> you know, draw the owl. Right. So uh, I took my profound lifelong love of arcades um, and meshed it with this game to basically turn my sponsor tables at all of these events that I was working as DevRel into mini arcades where I would have like all the cool like little arcade prizes out. And I made like a getting started guide for the Twilio Quest uh, gamified tutorials and like and and I would give away like high score prizes per conference and it was just a really great time and then like a year or so into that like Kevin actually made Twilio Quest into a legit like you download it and install it and run around on in levels with your avatar game with built-in coding tutorials like inside the game and the game will like evaluate your code and like make sure it does what it's supposed to do and you like either like either does and you like pass the objective and get experience points or it doesn't anyway it like took it like all the way like next level it, so basically what i think what it looks like i mean is it 2d kind of game you 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 i don't know it kind of has like a it's like I mean this in the most positive way. It has like an eighties kind of vibe to it. Like a, that's like, not, like an arcade kind of vibe. Yes. I love it. All right. Um, yeah. So that's, that launched, um, I want, I want to say a year ago, but I could be wrong because time is hard, but, um, I have, they, they started off with just a API content, but then they've been expanding it. Like Twilio quest became now, now it's like a sub team inside of the developer education team. There are like four of us now We're we're huge. Um, and, and, um, they, they started expanding it. Like I say they, because I hadn't been on the team yet. They started expanding it outside of the Twilio stuff to like have uh, GitHub stuff and like, um, JavaScript stuff and Python stuff. And so Kevin got really excited about the idea of maybe me coming on board and doing some PHP content because that's my strong background and I have a lot of connections in that community. And because it's an open source language full of mostly self-taught programmers, there aren't a lot of formal education opportunities for PHP. You're not going to find a lot of corporate backed boot camps for it or anything like that because it's not it's not profitable to the right kind of organizations in that way. Uh, so even though it runs like 80% of the web, <laughs> there are not a lot of formal education opportunities that center it. So I thought it would be super cool to try and put like some boot camp content for PHP inside of this video game format. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that is the new content that we are launching here in a minute. <laughs> I like it because it looks like today. So it looks like if I go here and I download it, it looks like you've got some, as you call it, operator training. So it's top secret JavaScript test lab. No surprise there. That's how I can learn how to use Twilio with JavaScript. Then 
Mysteries of the Pythonic Temple, if I'm saying that right. So that's for the Python people, right? Yep. Still, I'm, you know, I got to say, just a quick aside, still sad about the whole spaces in Python. You know, I'm helping my son learn. It's I'm, I'm just down, down with it. I don't like it. I want some semicolons. I just, I'm just going to renew that. Um, <laughs> going to renew my objection to it. White, white space is a tricky thing. I, I understand. I, I Listen, I don't like it. And then you have the, the flame of open source. Uh, and I like this. The evil legacy, legacy systems have stolen the legendary flame of open source. So it looks like there's another one I can do. And then finally advent of code right so it's like i don't know maybe like it's kind of like a zelda feel now that i read them all i kind of have that gazelda kind of uh, feeling going there so i'm all right. very happy about that take and then so you're you're gonna add sounds like you're adding one for php then right yes. is that what eventually we'll we'll have some creative name for for php mm-hmm. all right so i'll leave that to the audience you'll have to check back to see like what 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 you name but it i i will i will tell you that it is very 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 rooted in my childhood love of sci-fi. Like, let me just say, Ooh, could be like a is that like a Star that, a Star Trek that, kind of call out there? Let me just say that I I I may have finally gotten paid to design an intergenerational colony ship. That's all. That's all I'm gonna say. Oh, okay. Well, well, now I'll definitely be back. And in Twilio Quest, you have an original soundtrack here, so I guess I can download and listen to uh, all the music, exploring the cloud. You know, my number one hit. Okay. So, so this is the way that you, uh, Twilio helps train everybody, right? Is this, is that the end goal of Twilio Quest is the way I can come in here. I can learn how to learn some programming and learn how to use all your APIs. Is that what I'm going to get out of it? We, we like, we, we understand that like different people have different education styles. And so we just try to make the Twilio knowledge as accessible as possible by making it available on a lot of different, on a lot of different mediums. We, our docs are great. Our tutorials are great. Our blog posts are great. Uh, we've got Brent making amazing videos over on the YouTube. We've got like Corey and Layla and Gary like streaming on Twitch. And it's just trying to make the technical content as accessible as possible. And this is just one more way to do that. And it just happens to be a way that resonates really strongly with me. And so I'm super excited to get to be involved. That's good. I like, you know, it's a good ending. I mean, it's sort of like, it sounds like you found your home, you know, through, you know, you've been on your own quest, your own journey, but in the end, you always, <laughs> return home right you know it's like some some great sci-fi movie it says here free forever so there you Mm -hmm. go everyone sounds like you can go find twilio quest you can download it you can play the game you can learn not lots of new things so that's fantastic all right well this has been uh fantastic i've enjoyed learning all about twilio and your background so i appreciate you making the time so first question for you as we kind of wrap up one uh it sounds like everyone should start with Twilio Quest, but if I'm a developer and I'm looking to get started with Twilio, check out Twilio Quest. Anything else I should do? Just start downloading the APIs? Well, I, I think you should ask yourself how you learn best and know full well that however you learn best, we probably have a way for you to learn Twilio in that way. And if you're listening to this podcast and you've enjoyed it, that way is probably Twilio Quest because you're probably into video games and maybe space. <laughs> no, I like it. I think it's good. So uh, I want to do some of these quests myself. So, And then they should just contact you if they have problems. Eight, all millions of people should just you know hit you up. Um, all right. That'll well, that's be been, been uh, very exciting. <laughs> well, listen, where else, where else can people find you on the internet if they do want to engage you about Twilio Quest, Star Trek, or one of your uh, many other passions? I do live on the internet. I'm very easy to find there. I am dead underscore Lugosi on uh, Twitter. That's probably the easiest place to find me. Um, I am also dead no underscore Lugosi on the IRC if anybody's Whoa. still there. there there's yeah. a callback yeah. for you. 
Milwaukee. I'm on IRC right now. <laughs> but I, you know, I also check in on the Twitter. Uh, you can find me there. You can find me on GitHub. You can reach out via email mstaples at twilio.com. I just, you know, say hi, reach out. If I don't have the answers that you need for all of your Twilio based questions, I can always find someone who does. All right. Well, awesome. Fantastic. Hi. Fantastic. All right, Margaret. Well, we really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This has been delightful. <laughs> All right, fantastic. And for everyone else, if this is the first time you've listened to Software Defined Talk, welcome. And probably you can subscribe to Software Defined Talk in your podcast player as we speak, or you can go to www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. And there we've got links for all of the ways to join um, and follow our podcast. You can join our Slack. You can follow us on social media. Uh, you can even uh, get a sticker, and you do that by sending an email to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. If you include your postal address, I'd be happy to send you a sticker or a bunch of stickers. Just let me know how many you need, and we can do that pretty much anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.